Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. This is week 2 uh, in our series through prayer, the Lord's Prayer. It's called Pray Like This, if you just didn't happen to see the sign behind me. Um, we're going to be skipping around a little bit, but we're going to start in, in Matthew chapter 6, which is where we read the Lord's Prayer, what it's commonly known as. Um, I, I referenced this book last week. I took a quote from it. It's a fantastic book. I'm actually reading it again right now. It's from Paul Miller. It's called The Praying Life. We just got some copies into the bookstore. Everything we're talking about, how to practice it, how to apply it, really gets fleshed out in this book. Uh, and it's just an easy read. It's fantastic. And it really centers on Christ. And uh, so I would really recommend that you, you grab a copy. And if not in our bookstore, then, then uh, click on Amazon and, and do it that way. Um, so this is what we learned last week as we went into the first part of Matthew 6. It was our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is what we learned. Our main point was that prayer is how we know God as Father and receive his fatherliness with childlike dependency. Um, so what, what Jesus gave us last week is the, as we learned that this was a, the result of the disciples actually asking Jesus, if we go to Luke 11, they actually came to Jesus and they said, hey, teach us how to pray. And this is sort of the model that he, not sort of, I use that kind of lingo, it was, it is the model that he gave them of which to pray. And he basically last week gave us the way to address God as we come into our prayers. How do we start? How do we begin? You know, because every time we start praying to God, we're coming to him in a sense kind of cold, right? So how is it the way that we're supposed to address God? And he, he kind of laid out some things. He said, address him as father. Remember who he is. Remember where he is. He's in heaven. He's transcendent. He's sovereign. And then all at the end, he said, and hallowed be his name. So he gave us the instruction to remember that we also are, are praying to a, a holy and a transcendent God whose name is above all names. And the implications for God, his name being hallowed, is that he's all things to us, right? So he's not, not all, only just holy and he's not only just righteous, but because his name is, is hallowed, it means that he's all of these other things, right? God is also most generous, and he's most loving, and he's most gracious, and he's most aware, and he's most near to us, right? And I laid out about 719, you know, descriptive adjectives about God that I'm not going to do right now, but it means that he's all those things so that our approach to him can be one of Father, and because he's in heaven and he's hallowed, it means that we can depend and trust in him for all things. So then he gets us to this next part in verse 10, Matthew 6, verse 10, where he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're going to learn today is that praying for God's rule on earth and will in our lives is how joy, his joy, becomes deeply rooted in our hearts. And that's what we're going to see today as we keep moving forward through the prayer over the next couple weeks. Um, it's hard to give up control, isn't it? It's hard to give up control. Giving up control, it rubs against things in us. It actually rubs against, like when you have to give up control, it actually rubs against your sense of security. And you know, it's tricky for Christians when we talk about control because one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? It's actually self-control, right? Um, which means 
And this is what it means when we talk about self-control. It means you abstain from indulging in sinful practices by the power of God's Spirit. So self-control, like that's something we want. That's the kind of control via the Holy Spirit living inside of us that we actually want. But there's another kind of control, right, that we struggle with that's not good for us, which this prayer actually steers us against and reorders us from. And it's a control which is the ordering of our world in a way which best fulfills our desires, okay? So that's kind of how I'm defining the control that Jesus is kind of steering us away from when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a control that is the ordering of your world in a way which will fulfill your desires. And what happens is we attempt to do that, but we find that nothing is really and truly in our control at the end of the day, right? Think about your marriage. Think about your kids. Think about your health. Think about your finances, and as I say those words, and we're going to get, we're going to break those down a little bit as we get further into this, but just think about, as I mention those words, like marriage, kids, health, finances, like there's just literally, like there's just things collapsing all around those words right now, if you like look back into any part of your life, right? And what happens, and this is what happens, is that we lose control of those areas we work to gain control over. And then sometimes what happens when that happens, and we find that our lives are sort of collapsing a little bit in those areas, sometimes we decide to pray. We actually like stop and pause, and we go before the Lord, and we say, Lord, help me. But this is what's interesting, right? So I'm kind of giving you the end at the beginning. Here's what happens a lot of times, is that our prayers... When those things happen, when we feel that loss of control in those areas, you know what happens is our prayers appeal to God to give us control back. That's actually what, what we're praying a lot, of, a lot of the time. We pray to God to put things back into the order that we want so that we can retain what? Control. Jesus, what he's doing here in this prayer is he gives us an order in which to pray that is meant to get your heart in order, right? This is a reordering of our hearts. So as we look to the Lord's Prayer, we know that this isn't just some arbitrary thing, right? He didn't just lay this out arbitrarily. Because here's the thing, the way we pray, the way that you pray, it tells us something about our relationship to God. The way in which we pray, the order and the manner in which we pray. And here's our natural tendency with prayer. Our natural tendency is to be really, really concerned about our needs. And you know what? That's a right way to pray. That's a right thing to pray. We're going to learn that next week. But Jesus wanted our prayers to not begin or be consumed with what we want and what we desire, but to begin with what God desires for us, which is this, an unobstructed desire for him. So when you develop, follow me, when you develop a mature relationship with someone, I mean, I, I mean you don't only talk about yourself. I, I know that's a struggle for some of you because I've talk to some of you. But like when you develop a relationship with somebody, you don't only talk about yourself. You do this crazy thing where you like inquire about the other person's wants and needs and desires and interests, right? I mean, that would be what you would consider a, a mature relationship, right? And we have a diagnosis for when that doesn't happen. We, we call that a dysfunctional relationship, actually. So this is what the Lord's Prayer is meant to do. It's meant to draw us back to seeking God first, it's meant to draw us back to the heart of God and his heart for the world and his will for our lives to make our hearts 
more aware, more in love, more desirous, more eager, more sensitive, more pliable to God's overflowing from the core of our being, right? It's like when you leave the water on to boil too long. My wife never does that, right? Where you put the water on, it boils, and all of a sudden it's just popping out, and you're in the other room, and you walk, and it's like a literal volcano is just like streaming from your kitchen. It comes pouring out, and it starts spreading all over, and then my wife has like a terrible mess to clean up. It's a bummer for her, right? (laughs) But that's the point of prayer, for God to be boiling over into every thought, hope, dream, and love that we have. Remember what we read that quote from Tim Keller last week where he said, prayer is the key for everything we need to do and be in life. And he also said it's for the reordering of our loves. Remember how he said that? So here's the question. What would happen then if we prayed how Jesus is actually teaching us how to pray? Because here's what's interesting, right? And we got to remember this. When the disciples asked him how to pray, to pray, When they came to him and they said, Lord, we see how you pray. We see how you go out into desolate places and you spend a lot of time in prayer. So when the disciples came to him and they asked him how to pray, I I mean, he wasn't confused about what to tell them next. Right? He didn't say like, well, shoot, I I never thought about that before. Um, Well, here, just give this one a shot. Like, Like, that's not what he said. This model for how to pray is not really a suggestion for us, but something for us to practice Believing that when we obey the words of Jesus in the way that he gives us his words, God is glorified in our hearts. They become reshaped. So that's what we're looking at when we look at the way that Jesus is calling us to pray. We're looking at our hearts to be reformed and reshaped. So we're going to look at three different things. Number one, we're going to see how God is, how Jesus is bringing us to pray for God's rule, how he's bringing us to pray for God's will. And then three, he gives us this future glimpse into where his rule and his will is actually leading us. So right there, you see it right there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first thing Jesus draws us to is God's rule on earth. That's his first area of concern for us to come before God and pray to him for. So, if you grew up in the 1980s like I did, it means three things, all right? One, you're middle-aged. Two, you grew up in one of the most embarrassing decades of all time, all right? We got to own that. You got to own that, Mark Petrus. You're my age. Where are you? Three... A song you would have probably known every word to, for better or for worse, was a song called Everybody Wants to Rule the World by a band called Tears for Fears. Just trying to keep it current here, kids. All right? I mean, next time Ron Wallace preaches, you know, he'll bring you into the 90s, right? We just want to stay on top of those things. But that song, even the title of that song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, it speaks to the truth, right, that naturally exists in our hearts, which is we want to be the rulers and the controllers of our own world. All of us default to being empire builders, right? We all have an empire. We all want it built, and we all want it designed exactly how we want it designed. We are all general contractors of our own kingdoms, right? So if we're praying for God's kingdom to come, which is what he is instructing us here to do, what is that? I mean, here churches talk about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God exactly? Well, very simply, the kingdom of God is this. It's the reign and rule of God. You're like, that's it? No, that's a lot, but that is it. It's the reign and rule of God that was inaugurated with the coming, with the advent of Jesus Christ. So it's God's community of forgiven ambassadors called the church advancing to all corners 
of the earth. My friend Daniel Montgomery, he's a pastor and author. This is how he defined the kingdom of God. That's kind of a little more of a rigid definition. I like how he said it. He said the kingdom of God is simply the good life with Jesus, right? And that's what the church experiences, right? That's what the church experiences as they gather together and as they scatter into their communities with the kingdom of God, not just being this thing, but actually living inside of their hearts and flowing out of their mouths as they're experiencing and they're sharing and they're letting flow and spread in advance the good life with God, right? Now, the word kingdom, man, it's just not language we use in America, right? I mean, it's like, didn't we leave that whole monarchy thing behind, Ronnie? Like, that, wasn't, that was something we were trying to get away from. Well, yeah, we did. But there's a reason why Jesus doesn't tell us to pray, your United States come, your will be done, right? God's present and future kingdom is established on the unchanging truth, all right, and the incorruptible righteousness of a sovereign, holy, and perfect ruler who happens to be King Jesus, okay? So that's why when he says, your kingdom come, he's not talking about a democracy as much as he's talking about the perfect rule of the one who created all things to rule and to reign over. So Jesus is saying, when we pray to our heavenly hallowed father, our prayers should first communicate a desire that we have building and growing in us for God's rule and reign to cover the entire earth. Do you find yourself praying for that? Going to be honest, I don't very often, right? That's not my first, that's not the first place I go when I, when, I, when I bow before the Lord when I pray or when I'm driving in my car to pray or when I sit down with Scott Long to pray. I don't, I don't just naturally say, Lord, would you come, would your rule extend to all the pockets and the corners of our neighborhoods and our communities and the earth where it hasn't been yet known. That's not typically where my heart goes, unfortunately. But Jesus is saying that's what our prayer should first communicate, which is our desire for God's rule to reign and cover the earth. Turn with me to 2 Peter. And what you want to do is make a right and go all the way to the end. We're in 1 Peter a long time. I'd be super bummed right now if somebody said, I don't really know where 2 Peter is. And then if you tell me you know where 1 Peter is but not 2 Peter, then we just have to have a different conversation. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, I'm just going to read something to you. It's talking about the end, because when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying for something both present and future, as I'm like not being able to find 2 Peter right now. Um, guys, give me like 20 or 30 minutes here. I'm going to get to it, and then we're going to wrap up the sermon. It's going to be great. Um, here we go, 2 Peter 3. So this is Peter's encouragement when he's talking about the ushering in of God's kingdom when it comes in the end, something we can look forward to. We look in verse 10, and this is what, uh, this is what Peter says. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And he says in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, this is the part I want to key in on. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? 
right? So there is this anticipation, and our prayers should be representative and characteristic of that anticipation that, yes, the inauguration of the kingdom of God came with Christ, but we're, all wait- we're not there yet. Like, the end hasn't yet come. We're, it's already because of Christ, but not yet because it hasn't all uh, been uh, consummated yet, right? So our prayers need to start that way, and that's how we need to reorder our minds when we come before the Lord. So, We pray for God's rule on earth, so what advances that? What advances then God's kingdom? If we pray your kingdom come, what is the thing that actually propels that coming kingdom? And again, God's rule and reign on earth has always been the case. We're not talking about something that used to not be the case, but it was different. There was something different when God sent his son Jesus to the earth to kick off this redemptive plan that he had put in place back in creation when we fudged on the whole thing and sinned with our father and mother Adam and Eve, right? So there's something very unique and special that God did in his plan as he sent Jesus to begin the kingdom and begin the establishment and the advancement of his eventual forever rule and reign. So what advances this kingdom? Well, it's God's will. It's your will be done. It's God's will in our life. So along with praying for God's kingdom to advance, we also pray for his will to be done. So what is God's will, right? Because here's the thing. It seems to cause us major confusion, doesn't it? I mean, just as recently as this week, I had a couple of convos with people that were just struggling with this idea of God's will. And here's why it confuses us. It's because we apply it to things that God has not revealed to us, and then we just kind of turn this whole God's will thing into like superstition and like crystal balls, right? What we know about God's will is that it's for our sanctification. You realize it's that simple, right? God's will is for our sanctification. Let's bump over to, uh, it didn't go well last time, but I'm going to bump us over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So make make a sharp left. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So God's will for our lives is sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, it's a life that is pleasing to God. Let me just pick up with verse 1 there in, in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. I got there. The Lord just worked a miracle in my uh, selective skills there. And this is uh, Paul writing to the church of Thessalonica, and he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk into what? Please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. That's what he's saying. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he goes on to say that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control. There's that self-control we were talking about. His own body and holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. This brings us back to the hallowedness of God. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but disregards God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So what is sanctification? Well, it's, it's that. It's that. It's the process in which our hearts and minds become more conformed to the heart and mind of Jesus. Well then, okay, that's great, Martin, but how do we become sanctified then? Through obedience to God's commands. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8 is laying out for us. Living out God's commands is living a life pleasing to God. Well, that sounds rigid, man. 
As soon as you start saying things like commands and rules, I don't like that. Well, it would be rigid. It would be rigid if God's grace didn't turn obeying God's commands from drudgery to actual delight. David prayed for God's will in Psalm 51.12 when he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So praying for God's will to be done is how joy is actually restored. See, we think that the joy comes when we're actually living for ourselves and fulfilling the desires of our own will. The Bible tells us just a much different and actually more clearer story, which is that joy is restored when we actually obey the commands of God, which are not burdensome, but they're they're light and they bring rest. So joy is nothing less than delighting in everything that God wants which in turn makes obedience a delight, okay? So, if God's will is our sanctification, and sanctification comes by joyful obedience, then making decisions about things that don't disobey God's commands can be made with wisdom and discernment, okay? You guys following me with this? So, what happens is, when you don't act, when you don't take risks, when you don't do things and blame your lack of decision-making on whether it's God's will or not, you know what's happening right there? That's another way you're trying to assume control and live out your own will. Look, God does not tell us what car to buy. And he's not going to give you a voice in the middle of the night and say, Honda. <laughs> I mean, he's not going to do that. He doesn't tell you what car to buy. He doesn't tell you what person to marry. Let me just, let me blow some of these things away from your collective way of thinking. He does not tell you what car to buy, person to marry, what college to attend, what job to take, what state to live in, what color to paint your bedroom. I mean, you know, we could be here another 89 hours just l- listing things, right? He doesn't do that. You know what he's done instead? He's told us what his desire, his ultimate desire for our life is. And then what he's done on top of that, because he's gracious, is he's given us minds that have the kind of wisdom and discernment to make decisions about those things which will give him glory when those decisions reflect prayerful humility, dependence, and stewardship. Right? So if we're obeying God, if you are obeying God, you have the freedom to make wise decisions. And to trust that God will remain in control even when those decisions don't go as planned. I let that remove some burden from you. If you're stuck in a place right now and you're using your fear and lack of courage to say, well, it must not be God's will. No, it's that you're letting fear and courage determine and gain you the control that you want over the will over your life, right? Since you can be assured that God will take care of your needs, you can pray for his will to be done because, listen, his will already includes your needs. It's an amazing thing. Remember the story of Job? Remember what happened to that brother? I mean, that is not a, I mean that's a real story, and that's something that I'm guessing that none of us are ever going to come close to experiencing. But in Job 121, Um, Again, this was a godly man whose world was ruined, crushed. His entire family wiped out his fortune. Everything he had was taken away. And what does he say? He says, "Uh, I I came into this world naked. I'll leave this world naked. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. 
It's all his. It's all down to him. He controls everything, but in everything, I can trust in him. And what happened at the end of the story of Job is that God restored his life, but Job never stopped blessing his name. So Jesus says, pray for God's rule on the earth, pray for God's will on the earth and in your life. And he says, pray on earth for, for on earth as it is in heaven, okay? So what we are ultimately praying for as we get to the end there is a heavenly reality to take form and function on earth. You know that old saying, maybe you don't. Okay, I'm going to throw it out there. You know the old saying, uh, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You guys ever heard that? The problem with that statement is that if we were only more heavenly minded, we'd actually do far more earthly good, right? Because ain't nobody too heavenly minded, right? So here's the thing. There will come a day, all right? There will come a day when we're talking about God's rule and will being done on earth as it is in heaven. There will come a day when we will no longer pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done because it will be fully accomplished. And that's what this is speaking into. That's what this is getting us a glimpse into. Imagine a day when you no longer pray for brokenness to be restored. Can you imagine that day? Imagine a day when you no longer have to pray for forgiveness. Imagine the day when your mind is not racked with an overload of distractions and thoughts that you should not be thinking. Imagine the day when your heart is not being tempted and pulled in like 20 different directions at all times. That's why we pray this way. And that's why ultimately what Jesus is telling us is to seek God first above and before everything else because it realigns our desires back to what God desires. And that's really simply what he is calling us to do in a way of reordering our prayers. The problem is this, okay? The good life, the way we think of the good life, as opposed to God's version of the good life, is contrary to what we naturally think. What we want to make us happy doesn't actually make us happy. When our greatest objective in life is to see our own kingdom advance and our own will be done, it leads actually to this thing that we call idolatry. And idolatry we know to be slavery. It's not freedom at all. Matthew 6.33, if we moved ahead in uh, Matthew, we would see Jesus teaching us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He calls it out right there. He says, first, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. All these other things, all the things that we get our minds wrapped around and create anxiety over and fear around, all of those things that we are so troubled by, Jesus is saying, don't sweat the things that I am a good enough father to always provide you with. Get your mind and your heart realigned thinking the way God has called us to think by aligning our desires with his desires. So, when I first started dating my wife, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I just wanted to be with her, okay? Now, being with her usually included dinner and movies and incredibly romantic walks and dances under the moonlit sky because that's how I rolled, 
back in the day. Um, but although, yeah, okay. I'm trying not to look at my wife right now. This is really hard. Um, she's like looking back through her journal. I'm just trying. I can't find that right now. I'm looking to find that. I mean, I keep a really, you know, good record here, and that's not written anywhere. Well, you're, you're a bad writer. So, um, but here's my point is, uh, you know, all those things, all those things came with her, right? Be- because I was with her, all those things came with her, but I really just wanted to be with her, right? Those other things came as the result of being with her, but they, they didn't need to be there. Because some nights we would just sit and talk for hours, and we would just do nothing. We'd just talk. But when we did go out and we did all kinds of fun things, it was, it was actually the joy of being together that made dinner and movies and, and conversation so, so joyful. But, but really, it was her. It was her that I was seeking first. She was the one that, that I wanted to get to know. She was the one that thrilled my heart. She was the one I loved. It wasn't the stuff that came with her. And so when we pray this way, I think three things happen to us as we pray to, again, a, a, a father who is in heaven and hallowed. Three things happen when we get to this praying for his kingdom come and his will be done on earth that is in heaven. Number one, it, it makes me less worldly-minded, okay? When I pray for his kingdom first, his will, it makes me less worldly-minded. John tells us in 1 John, he says, the world is passing away. He reminds us of this, along with its desires. But then he says this, he says, but whoever does the will of God... Whoever obeys God, is what he's saying, abides forever, right? So he's bringing us back to what's lasting. The problem is that we're very much about seeking first the kingdom of us, right? We believe the road to happiness is always when we get what we want. But this model for prayer, it just flips that and it tells us the opposite. It tells us that it's only when we pray for God's kingdom and his will in heaven to spread to the ends of the earth that we experience satisfaction of soul, That's what it's saying. We experience a soul now that is content in the care of our Heavenly Father. Because getting what we want only satisfies when what we want is God more than anything else. That's what happens. So praying this way, kingdom come, will be done, makes me less worldly-minded too. It helps me give up control helps me give up control. How many times have we done everything right and it still doesn't work? We've taken care of our bodies, but a disease still comes. We've been a good spouse, but our marriage falls apart. We've tried our best to raise our kids, and they they go off the rails. We've worked hard at our job, and we get let go. We get laid off. How many times has that happened to us? How many times is it going to happen to us? What are we praying for in those moments? To retain the control that we don't have? Is that what you want? Do you want to just get it all back so that you can feel secure again? Because that wasn't security because it's not there anymore. Your will be done. You know what you're saying when you're praying for God's will to be done? You know what you're saying? You're you're saying, I don't know 
but I know you. That's what you're saying. But I know you. And I know that you are working all things to good because I love you and you have called me. That's what you're saying when you're saying, God, your will, your desire, because mine turn on me. So praying like this, it makes us less worldly-minded. It helps me give up control. And three, and finally, <coughs> excuse me, it grounds me in the present with future hope. See, we always seek what we desire most. It's your default. You can't help it. I can't help it. You're always going to lean into what you desire most. If you're, if you're getting philosophical about that in your head, let's chat after the service. But you always, you always fall back to what you desire most. Now, listen. If your desire is for God, then the good things that God will add to you will only increase your desire for God even more. So, it's when our prayers are for what God desires, we actually receive what will satisfy us most, which is the glory of God's will in heaven advancing to all the earth. It's when God's will is accomplished that joy is accomplished in us. It's when God's desires are fulfilled in us that our desires are most satisfied. It all goes back to God because God is the one that can only be responsible for giving us that fulfilled desire, that satisfaction that we crave and we go after with all the things that we try to get it through. And the reason why we know this to be true the model for this, of course, is Jesus. We understand praying this way because we saw it in Jesus. And we pray like this, it drives us back to Jesus. Remember on the night of his death, Jesus cried out to his father. He prays, not my will, but your will. You know what happened in that moment? God denies Jesus' request by granting him what will ultimately bring about the greatest desire in Jesus' heart, which was what? to obey the Father. And by obeying the Father, greatest joy would be experienced by his suffering on the cross. So God wants to reshape your desires. You know, this prayer doesn't deny that we have needs. We're going to talk about that next week. It actually reminds us that our greatest need has been given to us in Jesus. I mean, isn't a God who was good enough to grant us our greatest need, able to be trusted for our lesser ones? The heart of prayer is not what we're getting, but it's who we're becoming. And that's why praying like this reshapes that becoming. Praying like this deconstructs us. It deconstructs our wills and our desires. It reconstructs them into righteous ones. Praying like this, it brings us back to Jesus. Praying like this reminds us that our ultimate need has been filled by the suffering of Jesus. This was a prayer that Jesus would and did fulfill. So Jesus was giving the disciples a prayer for the present as we wait in hope for the future in which Christ will come and the glory of heaven will be our present reality forever. That's called hope. Let's pray. God, reshape our hope. We have false hopes, Lord. Reshape our desires. We have false 
desires. It's not that desire is wrong. It's just that the object of our desires strays from being you. So we never experience fulfillment. Lord, teach us through this. Lord, teach us how to pray to you like you did the disciples. Change what's off in our hearts. Let us be people that come to you with everything. But also, also help us remember that when we come to you and we pray for your kingdom to advance, we pray for your will to be done, what we are doing in those moments is we are aligning our desires with your desires. And when we do that, we actually find contentment. And we actually trust you when all of those areas in our lives start going awry and become unsettled and shaky and we start losing things. Lord, thank you for being so good to us to give us a way to pray to you, to open up a channel in which we can go before you, not just as something to mimic as much as something that is going to create deeper life for you, deeper joy for you, deeper affection for you as we go through the discipline and practice of it. Thank you. Thank you for this truth, we pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.